Daniel chapter 9, I've entitled this message, Banking on the Promises. Banking on the Promises. There are two speakers in this passage, Daniel and the angel Gabriel. And so we thought the two of us would read different portions. Kids, I hope this helps you a little bit to imagine the scene. Kids, I want you to use your imagination, you might say, to picture this scene in your mind, okay? Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet, to, the Jer- to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desol- the desolations of Israel, uh, Jerusalem, sorry, before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far off, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, 
according to all your righteous acts. Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the end of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a hol most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the end, I'm sorry, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. With the word of the Lord. Thank you, beloved. I had Sung read the angels' parts because she's the far more angelic one in our marriage. Well, there's a lot there, isn't there? If you're thinking that, I've been thinking that. 
But I, I think a, a unifying thread, a unifying thread running through all of that is what God's word produces in God's people. That's the thread I want to particularly pull on. What God's word here produces in God's people as seen in Daniel's life. It's kind of like this. John Owencheka recounts how in 1997, Reed Hastings was on his way home from Blockbuster Video. If you recall Blockbuster Video, some of you. Blockbuster had charged Mr. Hastings $40 for losing a VHS cassette, if you recall what those are, a VHS, VHS cassette of the movie Apollo 13. He had lost that cassette and was charged $40. In his discontentment with what he considered a corrupt video rental industry, Hastings decided to do something about it. He thought of a service that lets you keep videos for as long as you want with no late fees. A service that came to be known as Netflix. Perhaps you've heard of it. As Owen Cheka points out from this story, discontentment spurs us to action. Discontentment spurs us to action. For Mr. Hastings, his discontentment with blockbuster video spurred him to the idea that became Netflix. For Daniel, in this passage, the same is true. A holy discontentment. A holy discontentment spurs him to prayer and further hope for God's promises. Here's the problem we face. We often lack the holy discontentment to spur us similarly, do we not? We lack a holy discontentment about ourselves, about the church of Jesus Christ, and about God's yet unfinished finished purposes in the earth. So, so where do we get the holy discontentment that we see that Daniel had? What produces that in us? Well, that's the thread I'm pulling on. Because in this passage, God's word does that. Here, God's word functions in God's people to create a holy discontentment that spurs us forward in God's purposes. And it does that in two ways. Two ways we see that. First, God's word produces prayer for God's purposes in this passage. First, God's word produces prayer for God's purposes. Prayer. In verse 2, Daniel says, he perceived in the books the number of years that according, notice, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet. He's been studying Jeremiah the prophet. He perceives the number of years that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Two times in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25 and 29, God says the exile will last 70 years. At this point, Daniel's been in Babylon in exile about 66 years. 
And Israel has, in effect, been under the Babylonian thumb for about 70 years. <coughs> Excuse me. So Daniel concludes, the expiration date on this exile is coming due. So he laments, like we did from Psalm 42 a moment ago. He laments in a kind of communal lament. He fasts. He puts on sackcloth and ashes as signs of repentance, signs of contrition. And then provides this kind of model repentant prayer. A model repentant prayer having three essential elements. Adoration, confession, and supplication. First, he, he adores. He adores the God of the word. Notice verse 4. In verse 4, he addresses the great an awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Verse 7, he says, to you belongs righteousness. Verse 9, he says, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Verse 14, he says, God is righteous, righteous in all his works he has done, including certainly the exile. He calls on the covenant name for God eight times. The only times in the whole book of Daniel that the covenant name for God, the personal name for God, appears in the entire book. Just this chapter. Eight times he calls upon the personal name for God, Yahweh, reinforcing that this is the promise-making, promise-keeping God to whom he's praying. This prayer is first based on who God is as he has revealed himself in his word. Do we pray the same way? He's reading Jeremiah. And he cries out to God in light of how God has revealed himself to be his character in his word. In Alice in Wonderland, Alice falls down the rabbit hole returns to Wonderland, and the Mad Hatter says to, says to her, you're not the same as you were before. You are much more muchier. You've lost your muchness. Something similar happens to us when it comes to God. He can too easily lose his muchness in our eyes. We lose sight of how much greatness, how much glory and, and majesty he has. Is that, is that happening for you? Maybe no longer driven to worship gladly out of a response to God's greatness. If so, gaze at him through the prism of his word like Daniel does. There is adoration and then Daniel confesses their failure to keep God's word. And this is certainly the heart of this prayer. A lot of real estate given to this. He confesses their failure to keep God's word. He says they have rejected God's word in his law, like verse 5. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Notice, turning aside. Turning aside from your commandments and rules in your word. 
He also says they've rejected God's word from his prophets, verses 6 and 10. The result being open shame, he says twice, open shame before God. For their treachery, he says, against God. He goes on to highlight covenant curses that have brought them to exile. Verse 11, he notes the curse, the curse and oath that are written, written in the law of Moses. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. And then he says in verse 13, we have not entreated your favor. In response to this deserved discipline, We've not entreated your favor, turning from our iniquities. So, so, Daniel confesses the sins of the people. Certainly his own sins, but particularly the sins of the people, saying we and us repeatedly. In other words, it's not just their problem, those sinners I'm with. It's our problem, he says. It's this corporate communal lament. For the sins of his people. Now the question you might be asking is, should we confess the sins of our nation like Daniel does here? It's July 4th. I hope you're grateful for our country like I am. But grievous things have been done in our nation and still are at times. So certainly it's appropriate to acknowledge that. It's right to acknowledge that. But keep in mind, this is a rather unique situation, ancient Israel in exile. And keep in mind, ancient Israel finds her fulfillment in the church, not the USA. The church is the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. The church is the Israel of God. So we could pray along these lines for the church perhaps more directly, but I think maybe an even better way to apply is to personalize this prayer of confession because we all share the same problem here, don't we? We all share this problem. In 1986, following the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, one, one Soviet scientist told the truth about what caused the meltdown, caused great embarrassment in the Soviet Union. His testimony showed how their lies, their incompetence, and their cost-cutting measures led to the greatest nuclear disaster the world has known. This, this one man's testimony probably saved countless lives because he highlighted how the same design flaw in Chernobyl was in the other nuclear plants of the Soviet Union. Because of his testimony, that same design flaw was corrected and multiple disasters averted. Friends, we share the design flaw Daniel's describing. A design flaw called sin turning away from God's word, rejecting his right law, rejecting his revelation through his prophets. We must acknowledge that to avert our own personal disaster, to realize we're not 
pretty good people who've made a few mistakes. We've committed treachery against God, as Daniel puts it. We are left to ourselves in open shame before God, as Daniel puts it. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, listen, disaster looms for you if you don't acknowledge that reality about yourself and flee to Jesus Christ by faith. I'm going to talk in a moment about what Jesus has done for us. But I want to say first, acknowledge your design flaw, your sin. Humble yourself before this great and awesome God. Acknowledge your open shame before him that you might be positioned to experience his grace and his mercy. But all of us, all of us can personalize this confession, can we not? All of us can apply this, can't we not? As J.C. Ryle once said, tell me, what a man's prayers are, and I will soon tell you the state of his soul. That's pretty convicting, isn't it? Tell me what a man's prayers are. I will tell you the state of his soul. Friends, if your prayers do not include regular confession of sin, you need to ask, what is that saying about the state of my soul? Maybe your soul has grown dull to the presence of sin. And so you have grown dull to the work of Christ on your behalf. You need God's word to help you like it does for Daniel. You might consider how God's commandments reveal our sin to take us to Christ. How the Ten Commandments do that. Or even Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. As a family, we've been reading through portions of the Sermon on the Mount. And last Friday, we read Jesus' command to love your enemies. And by extension, love your siblings and others as well, of course. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But I'll tell you what, that reveals my sin pretty quick. We need this kind of holy discontentment about ourselves, spurring us to prayer, taking us to Christ. So Daniel adores the God of the word. He confesses their failures to keep God's word, and then he transitions. Verse 16, he transitions to bring requests based on God's word. Recall he's been reading of God's promised restoration in Jeremiah, Restoration from exile. So he prays for mercy. Mercy in the form, verse 16, of let your anger, verse 16, and wrath be turned away from Jerusalem. Verse 17, make your face, your face shine upon your sanctuary. Bring us back to the promised land. Restore Jerusalem. Restore the temple. Make your face Make your presence be made known among us there, O oh God. He prays these big prayers. And notice why. Verse 17, for your own sake, O oh Lord. Verse 18 and 19, for the people called by your name. It's God's name, God's reputation motivating him. 
as Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be your name. Friends, we approach, we approach the same God for the same reason. So let us also pray big prayers about his revealed purposes in his word. Big prayers about God's revealed plans and purposes in the earth. Well-known preacher John Stott, he writes of one time visiting a church incognito, sitting in the back row. He reflects later saying, quote, when we came to the pastoral prayer, it was led by a lay brother because the pastor was on holiday. So he prayed that the pastor might have a good holiday. Well, that's fine. Pastors should have good holidays. Second, he prayed for a lady in the church who was about to give birth, that she might have a safe delivery, which is fine. Third, he prayed for another lady who was sick, and then it was over. That's all there was. It took 20 seconds. I said to myself, it's a village church with a village God. It's a village church with a village God. He says, they have no interest in the world outside. There is no thinking about the poor, the oppressed, the refugees, the places of violence, and world evangelization. Just a village church with a village God. That's not what we want to be, is it? I mean, Joshua's pastoral prayer for the persecuted church. That was not a village prayer to a village God. Most every week, one of our pastors leads us in prayer for issues bigger than ourselves, friends. That we'd not be a village church, a village God. I want to encourage you to participate in those prayers as one way of applying Daniel 9. When we pray like that as a church, when one of our elders leads us like that in prayer, I want to encourage you to, to think of it Think of it like bowling. I, I refuse to watch bowling on television. But going bowling yourself is relatively fun, right? It's relatively enjoyable. It's far better to participate in bowling than merely spectate bowling. Think of Sunday mornings like that. Don't be a spectator. You're called here to be a participant to engage with the singing while your mind and soul and strength engage with the preaching and engage with the praying, friends. As one way to apply here, engage with the praying. We want God's word producing prayer for God's purposes like we see here. That's the first way we see God's word functioning in God's people to propel us forward. Here's the second. God's word produces hope in God's promises. Prayer for God's purposes. And secondly, hope. Hope in God's promises. Verse 21. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at first, prior chapter, came to me in swift flight 
at the time of the evening sacrifice. So catch what's happening. Daniel has just prayed to God based upon his word. Now we see God's reply, God's word, back to Daniel through Gabriel. Track with me. Here's God's word now to Daniel through Gabriel to produce hope. He goes on. Gabriel does. Verse 24. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. 70 weeks or 77. So usually understood as 70 periods of seven years each, or if you do the math, 490 years total. It's also possible there's a symbolic element here. Remember, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature. And the number seven is symbolic in scripture of completion or perfection. So there might be a sense of completed periods of time. Regardless, regardless, see how God's word means to produce hope. Recall the first readers are in exile. They're captives. They're enslaved in exile. They're needing hope, hope of restoration. And I'm going to focus on, on the what, not so much the when. <laughs> I'm going to focus on the what of that restoration, not so much the when. So verse 24 continues. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Think about, think about John 1.29, when John the, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, to be a sin offering who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sounds a lot like verse 24. Finish transgression. Put an end to sin. Atone for iniquity. But, but the end of sin, the end and the bringing in of everlasting righteousness in verse 24, well, that probably looks ahead to when Christ returns. Verse 25 predicts the, or the, the restoration of Jerusalem in a troubled time, which happened. Verse 26 speaks of an anointed one, a Messiah who is cut off, referring to a violent death. Sounds like Christ being cut off by crucifixion. Verse 27 speaks of one who makes a strong covenant with many. This is highly debated. But could well be Jesus, I think, as he said at the Last Supper, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Then verse 27 adds, the decreed end, the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, sounding like final judgment on the Antichrist. So the scope seems like it could be, yes, the restoration of Jerusalem and the coming of Christ and maybe all the way to his second coming. It's also possible, and believe me, people argue every element that I just mentioned. 
It's also possible there are multiple fulfillments of some of what is described. Like Antiochus Epiphanes desecrating the temple in 165 B.C. And the Roman general Titus may very well be in view when he raised Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. It's a, it's a difficult passage. It's been called one of the most difficult in the Bible. But I want to suggest to you that you read Daniel 9 in light of further revelation in the New Testament. You read what is less clear in light of what is more clear. It's kind of like this. Vaughn Roberts says, imagine taking an Agatha Christie novel, ripping it in half, giving half of that novel to one friend, half of that novel to a different, a different friend. He said, you would frustrate both friends <laughs> because that novel is meant to be read as one book. That's what your Bible is like. It's meant to be read as one book. Don't rip apart Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament anticipates what the New Testament explains and applies. So read Daniel 9, maybe with Luke 24 in mind. In Luke 24, the risen Jesus meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and we're told, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Can't you imagine at some point in that Bible study, I wish I was there, at some point in that Bible study, Jesus turned to Daniel 9, and the two disciples said, I'm so glad you're going to explain this to me. <laughs> and Jesus did what Luke 24 mentions, interpreted to them, the things in this chapter concerning himself. Focus there. How Jesus is the ultimate intercessor for his people, like Daniel models in his prayer. How Jesus finished transgression, atoned for iniquity, and will bring in everlasting righteousness in verse 24. How he is the ultimate anointed one, or Messiah, who was cut off, crucified for our sins in verse 26. How he did make a strong covenant, the new covenant with the people of God. Friends, this is our hope, your hope and mine. Hope you need to derive from this passage. Hope you need to excavate today from this passage and take with you. Because Israel was not the only covenant breaker. We are too. We've already experienced, all of humanity has experienced the covenant curse, you might say, of exile out of Eden, out of the immediate presence of God. But, Galatians 3 tells us, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's our hope. He bore our curse in our place. The reformer Martin Luther puts it like this. Catch this quote. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all men, saying, you be Peter, that denier. You be Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. You be David, that adulterer, that sinner who ate the apple in paradise, that thief who hung on the cross. In short, you, 
God the Son, you be the person who has committed all the sins of everyone. See that you pay and satisfy for them. He sent his Son into the world and laid upon him my sins and said to his Son, you be tab trainer and satisfy for his sins. He, he said to his son, you be and put your name in. And then the father said to his son, you satisfy for their sins too. Daniel prayed. Daniel prayed for the curse of the exile to be lifted and for a return to Jerusalem. And what I'm saying is, Christ has finished your transgressions, atoned for your iniquities, as verse 24 put it, and he will bring you into the ultimate Jerusalem. Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Daniel is praying for that Jerusalem. Oh, take us back to that Jerusalem. Hear what the Apostle John saw. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Take Daniel 9, expand your vision through Revelation 21. Allow God's word to create a holy, a holy discontentment for that day, a hope like that in God's promises. We are... We are sojourners here. We are exiles here. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's going to be hard sometimes. As Carl Truman says, we are already exiles from mainstream culture. We're said to be on the wrong side of history. Maybe that disheartens you. Maybe that discourages you. Maybe that tempts you to want to water down God's word or chuck it all together. Listen, in the end, the church, the people of God are vindicated. Revelation 21, he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Or maybe... Maybe you're suffering personally, as we lamented earlier. The trials of life weighing you down. The anxieties of uncertainty on your heart. The pain of disappointment you're carrying with you right now. Friend, anticipate this promised hope. When suffering turns to triumph and sorrow to joy, Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more.
neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. That's your promised hope, friends. So, let God's word do for you like it did for Daniel in Daniel 9. Let God's word produce in you prayer, repentant prayer for God's purposes, and hope, hope in God's promises. That's my exhortation. That's the holy discontentment we need spurring us forward. God's word producing in you and me prayer for his purposes like we see here, and hope, hope in God's promises for what is surely to come for his people. So let's pray. And those who are going to serve us the Lord's Supper can prepare to do so.